Today, as part of Signs Ask a Feminist series, I have the opportunity to speak about sexual harassment and the hashtag MeToo movement with feminist legal scholar Catherine McKinnon, a lawyer, writer, advocate, very well known, who is Elizabeth A. Long Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School and the James Barr Ames Visiting Scholar of Law at Harvard Law School, one of the most cited legal scholars in the English language. McKinnon is the author of numerous books, including the groundbreaking work, Sexual Harassment of Working Women, A Case of, Sexual of Sex Discrimination, published in 1979 by Yale University Press, when Professor McKinnon was completing her PhD at Yale. McKinnon went on to argue and win the landmark Supreme Court case, Meritor Savings Bank v. Vincent, which established sexual harassment as discrimination. McKinnon has authored numerous books on critical debates and feminist thought, including Feminism Unmodified, Towards a Feminist Theory of the State, and Are Women Human? I had the opportunity before this interview to read some of Professor McKinnon's research related to her landmark first book in an extraordinary resource, Professor McKinnon's own papers, acquired by the Arthur and Elizabeth Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. Her study, published almost 40 years ago, became the basis of transformations not only in sexual harassment law, but in wider discourses that shaped the public perception of the very idea of sexual harassment. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg cites McKinnon's sexual harassment as the landmark study, the foundation for legal debates about discrimination on the basis of sex. So today I wanted to start with you, Professor McKinnon, in remarks uh, in 1981 at the Capital University Law Review, um, as you were arguing for sexual harassment as a form of discrimination, you describe how sexual harassment is, quote, the first legal wrong to be defined by women. So I wonder if you could begin by speaking about your time at Yale University when you first became interested in working and writing on sexual harassment as a Title VII violation. How did you define the issue? What were some issues that were circulating around you that influenced your thinking about this question? Well, I was part of the movement for women's liberation um, in New Haven that was also developing and had developed in the United States and around the world. Mm. So that was the major influence. Um, the specific form that took was I was in law school actually. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, sitting in um, on, you were right that I was finishing the book when I was finishing my, when I was working on my doctorate, but mm. I, when I created a legal claim, I was in law school and um, I had heard about the experience of a woman named Carmita Wood uh, through women at Cornell University. Um, Carmita Wood had had to leave her job because of the extensive physical and psychological complications and consequences of being uh, viciously, really, sexually harassed by her employer, although there was no real term sexual harassment as any kind of you know, recognized term of art or anything at the time. Mm. And I was sitting in on a law school class called Sex Discrimination and the Law. Um, and my feeling about the cases at that time and the way that discrimination was defined was that if this is what courts thought 
inequality and equality were about, we were never going to have equality. Mm. That they just, it was all about, you know, were women the same as men in the following ways? And if and when we were then, and then treated on the basis of an accident of birth, uh, as if we weren't, uh, then, you know, we, we could make a, an equality claim. And uh, it was clear to me that the way particularly sexuality worked socially as a form of subordination, when it was a form of subordination, was uh, considered the so-called sex difference. And that it was going to be a big problem uh, considering sameness as the standard uh, there for women because women's sexuality wasn't going to be seen as the same as men's. And the way men treated women when we were sexually harassed was going to be seen just as a part of the sex difference. This is just what men do. Mm -hmm. uh, So-called will be boys, um, meaning women will be subordinated by them. Um, and that will be seen as effectively equality because if you're really so-called different, uh, and you're treated differently, that was and actually still is what equality means in law. So uh, then I heard about Carmita Wood's situation, and I read about it in a newsletter sent by the Cornell Women's Center. And to me, it, it just exploded in my head as, here, finally, this is what sex inequality really looks like. Mm -hmm. Not all these cases uh, that have been tried in, in the courts so much, even though there was inequality in those, but it was nothing like this. And this was the real paradigm. So that was where I started with redoing sex discrimination law and conceiving of and choosing the term sexual harassment, which was one of several terms at the time, uh, being used for this kind of experience, although it was a very free-flowing thing. It wasn't uh, defined in scholarly terms or even journalistic terms, although there was a little bit of journalism about it, which was very helpful at the time. Mm -hmm. Red, Book Mag Red Book Magazine, actually, in particular. Um, and then there was uh, journalism in the New York Times. But the organization um, first called Working Women United, and my contact there was Karen Sauvignier. She um, was very helpful and the organization was as well. And, um, you know, it developed from there. That's great. I mean, you know, I can see from your papers just the extraordinary, you know, review of case law that was required to try to define something that had clearly been undefined in the law. And I was interested in maybe you telling us a, a little bit more about what other legal precedents like cases of racial discrimination, or maybe different from cases of, of racial discrimination, shape your argument um, in the book, but also in the Supreme Court case on sexual harassment as discrimination? Well, there was one case called Rogers versus EEOC uh, that was a race case at the time mm. um, that uh, held that segregating patients um, at a medical facility was uh, a condition of work for the people who worked there uh, that was discriminatory toward them. Uh, these were uh, Latinas uh, at, at the time in, in mm. the particular case. And what I found most helpful in the race discrimination cases was that line within 
uh, racial equality argument, uh, which had registered to some extent in the law, uh, to some actually powerful extent, um, that, I mean, nobody was saying, you know, if you're a member of this race or that race, then you're just different. And if you're treated differently according to that difference, then that is not discrimination. That is what equality looks like. Uh, people didn't say that about race. Um, it was understood that there, to, really to a considerable degree, although it was highly implicit, that there was a, a hierarchy called white supremacy at the time. Mm. Uh, and indeed still is uh, such a hierarchy, although it seemed the comprehension of it in law sort of fades in and out. Um, but that that hierarchical understanding could be discerned at least implicitly in some of the most powerful cases that had been decided on behalf of actually it was African Americans, uh, but also there were cases brought by Asian Americans uh, of particular backgrounds. And um, so that was much more helpful than anything in sex equality law because there was no real understanding uh, of the subordination of women and of male dominance as a system uh, at the time uh, of male supremacy in law. Um, so uh, the racial cases and their understanding of what inequality really looks like and therefore what equality could be mm -hmm. and what it had to be uh, in order to actually uh, be equal in reality uh, were were the more helpful uh, of the case precedent. Okay. Um, so moving forward to today, uh, you spoke in your op-ed in the New York Times in February of this year about the Me Too movement, achieving what the law alone could not do. And I wonder whether you could reflect again for our science audience and maybe a little bit more at length on the relationship between this extraordinary wave of social media facilitated activism and in the ongoing movement that we call Me Too and legal and social change. So how do you see this moment of public outrage and activism as different than the past? And how do you see the relationship between Me Too and future revisions to the law? Well, actually the headline that uh, Me Too has done what the law could not uh, is not what my op-ed says. Um, mm. The What it says is that Me Too has done what the law hadn't so far done, done. but could right. uh, and will. Um, I suppose you could say the law couldn't do it yet because it hasn't. Um, but basically <clears throat> what the Me you know, it, it also is inconceivable that there would be a Me Too movement if everything that... Uh, is included in the concept of sexual harassment was still as legal as it was 40 years ago. Right. In other words, if something isn't illegal, it's effectively legal. Um, right. And, and then speaking about it would not effectively have any meaning. Right. And it, it, right. It's, right. It's what Gloria Steinem called just life. It was exactly just life. It was something that women just had to live through and figure out our each of our own ways around and or together with a couple of others. And so, you know, there is a real relation between the fact that the law recognized that sexual harassment was an illegal form of sex discrimination and that it encompassed so much of women's experience uh, of this particular violation within that legal recognition, 
Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the 40 years of time that passed, um, a lot of what's happened is that, you know, the courts have uh, restricted that recognition um, in ways of which I'm extremely critical and made it more and more difficult, even than it was before, for women to come forward and actually get relief to the extent that a brilliant study by uh, Professor Louise Fitzgerald called Why Doesn't She Just Report Him found that the answer to that question Mm. is that women's lives were worse off both subjectively and objectively when they reported being sexually harassed. That's why they don't report uh, because their lives are worse. So it just as it is quite inconceivable that if all the actions that have been complained of and reported uh, by the Me Too movement had been legal for the last 40 years, it's inconceivable that we would have had a movement like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's also um, pretty clear that the law should have recognized a great many of those abuses in ways that it didn't, or the people who were violated, who are now reporting those violations going back 20, 30, or 40 years, would have been reporting them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and been able to get the kind of relief that they should be receiving. So, you know, there's a, a real positive relationship uh, that the law has had to supporting this kind of movement and protest. And at the same time, this movement and protest poses a very clear challenge to the inadequacy of the law's uh, former response to it. Now, mm-hmm. the other thing just to notice is that a lot of uh, the action that has been most notice, notable, really, uh, coming out of Me Too are things that the law isn't even set up to do. That is, this the legal claim for sexual harassment as a civil rights claim is focused on getting relief for the person who is abused. It it doesn't even permit, uh, as a strict legal consequence, doing anything at all to the perpetrator. So what is most remarkable about the present moment is notice is seeing women coming forward and saying what various uh, quite powerful men have done to them Mm-hmm. And what other quite powerful men uh, come to the very swift conclusion, suddenly, this is what is new here, suddenly coming to the conclusion that they can't afford to keep those men around, when in fact, their former conclusion was always they didn't want the women around. Right. Um, and, you know, so that is the big reversal of the present time. And, you know, the law hasn't had a direct relation to that, except for the fact that there's something called employment at will, which a lot of us have been critical of for a long time, which allows employers to fire anyone for any reason at all, uh, except for discrimination. So what we're seeing here is the power of employers that they've always had um, being used against high-ranking male employees for being accused of sexual abuse. And all of a sudden, everybody's saying, what about due process? You know, how you know, was there an investigation? You know, it's important that everybody's rights are preserved here, but it's a good time to notice that the employers 
pretty much unless there's a specific contractual change in that relationship that that governs a particular relationship that it just legally speaking in most places anyway um most employers have uh the legal right to just fire these guys because they've been complained of right so that's the biggest change from this movement that that we've seen in terms of you know an actual transformation in the construction of the world is the consequences for the perpetrators. Right. And I wonder, I mean, uh, one of the things that you spoke about briefly in other contexts was about the statute of limitations for filing cases in the Mm -hmm. EEOC. So could you explain that a little bit more to the science readers about how the statute of limitations work? What is the the statute? Well, the the way they work is any statute of limitations, the way it works is it, it's a time limit from the last time the legally recognized injury was inflicted to the time it was complained about in an official way, either administratively or filed in court in some fashion mm-hmm. or a prosecution brought. That time period is called the statute of limitations between the end of the injury and the beginning of a legal process by the, by the survivor. And in criminal law, they are sometimes a year, three years, six years. Sometimes there is none if they think if it's thought that this is such an outrageous injury or it runs from a certain time. Like they've changed child sexual abuse statutes limitations now to where sometimes they run from when the person first remembers the injury or first is aware of the harm that the injury caused them from there uh, or from the age of majority on, so that you can be sexually abused as a child at say five, six or seven years old, but your statute of limitations doesn't start running until you're 18 and then you have say a dozen years okay. uh, right. or discovery, et cetera. That's the way these things work. So what it means is there comes a moment in which the legal injury disappears, goes poof, it evaporates. It is no longer in existence because the time period has run of of its legal recognition. Mm -hmm. So you find then in discrimination law in general, all discrimination law is statutes of limitations constructed by Congress in federal law by days, Mm. 180 days, 240 days, 360 days, you know, depending on which discrimination statute you're under. So you're looking at just a few months they're the shortest statutes limitations that I have ever seen in law anywhere for anything. Right. So somebody knows there's an awful lot of this stuff. And if we recognized it all in court, we might be doing nothing but adjudicating discrimination claims because there is so much discrimination. So the handiest way to make it cease to, to to keep that controlled, they call this docket control, by the way, in Mm. courts, um, is to chop off its existence within a very few days. So, you know, most women who've been sex, or anyone, men as well, who've been sexually violated in any form, but this includes sexual harassment in education, sexual harassment at work. Most people who've been sexually abused are not in any state to bring a legal claim within days 
you know, they're still in trauma, never mind post-trauma, never mind getting past post-traumatic. You know, they're still traumatized. Right. And so what that has, has meant, along with everything else that discourages doing anything about these injuries, is that uh, by the time the survivor is in anti-mental condition uh, to do anything about it, the statute of limitations has disappeared the legal existence of their possible claim. Right. This is, I mean, it's a great possible avenue for advocacy and thinking about ways, when you were saying about the way in which the law and these social movements relate to one another. Um, and I, I just want to kind of push more on or think more about the social movement and think again about the relationship between the law and social movements. Um, and it was Tarana Burke, um, as you know, an African-American civil rights advocate whose powerful articulation of the endemic nature of sexual harassment and violence in the phrase Me Too was the inception um, eventually of what we know now is a global social movement. Burke's work focused, focuses on sexual violence that disproportionately affects people of color and particularly young girls and women. And so I wondered if you might reflect on the ways in which you think the role of the law today, or maybe thinking about the law in conversation with social movements, sit at the intersection of sexual harassment, violence, and racial discrimination. Do you see a place for the law that could address concerns of women of color, particularly um, people of color more broadly in working class contexts, immigrants especially, who face disproportionate amounts of harassment and sexual violence in working conditions? It should be recognized that it was actually African-American women uh, whose leadership as plaintiffs made possible the recognition of sexual harassment law in the first place. Mm. Uh, they are the plaintiffs in all the landmark original cases, um, my clients actually. Um, and the fact that they were African-American was actually discussed at the time and was part of uh, the way those cases uh, were litigated, in particular in the workplace context, um, at least in, in my cases, they were. Um, also, it was understood that as African-American women, they were representing women, all women, um, and that it was as women, particularly African-American women, but women, <laughs> that they are still women, that um, they were sexually harassed and therefore uh, could stand for the term sex in sex discrimination. So the term sex you know, was essentially argued to embrace all women, including their, partic their particularities. In other words, all women have particularities and those particularities don't make them less women, they make them who women actually are. And this targeted them for discrimination. Uh, and this um, then was something that, you know, the courts were brought to recognize was discriminatory. And this is before the brilliant uh, theorization of intersectionality by Professor Kim Crenshaw uh, had occurred. Mm -hmm. um, once that happened, this, this entire discussion was able to be brought far more explicitly into uh, the, the more legally express levels of recognition here. Mm. Um, and 
as you say, it's definitely the case uh, that women of color are sexually violated at higher rates and this in, than white women. Um, and this includes in particular uh, in the United States, Native women, um, indigenous women, women of, of uh, indigenous ancestry, and um, but also all women who are racially subordinated are uh, more frequently targeted for racial discrimination and together with sex discrimination, including in sexual ways. Mm -hmm. Immigrant women, particularly if they are not documented, say, are in an extremely vulnerable position because the, the basic dynamic of sexual harassment, which is uh, the threat uh, combined with the sexual demand, mm -hmm. then means that they and their entire families, including potentially their murder if they are to be deported back to where they came from, fleeing uh, conditions of violence at, in many instances, um, that that uh, can be made a, con a condition of sexual delivery. In other words, you know, suck my penis or I'll turn you into the ice. Right. And it, that has long existed, but the precariousness of increased pressure on those communities has made that an even more effective uh, tool for sexual violation. Right. Um, basically, basically any form of unequal power, uh, which in the United States emphatically, obviously, includes uh, race and ethnicity, but also class, immigration status, uh, state power, just plain the police. Right. You know, many, many women of color in particular are... Uh, sexually violated by police officers um, and who are using the power of the state over them, particularly as women of color, on the bet, which has been a reasonable one to make, that they wouldn't be believed, or if they were be believed, nobody would care right. that a police officer had violated them. And so that uh, a tremendous amount of the abuse of uh, women of color in the United States in particular by police officers is sexual. Mm -hmm. So any, anything that is a form of power is then used, including age, you know, it, it, as well as race, ethnicity, class, immigration status, being a doctor, being a teacher, being an employer, all of those are used to get the drop on people. Mm -hmm. And it's multiply the case that the drop is gotten on women, women of color. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just a matter of how many hierarchies you're under uh, that enhances your vulnerability to this form of abuse. And as the law, so far as the law goes, it only really recognizes sexual harassment in employment and in education. And that's because we have equality rights there. And we have those because of the black civil rights movement, because it got them there. Right. And also in federal housing, actually, um, which where there are discrimination uh, claims that can be made and in public accommodations. But 
in housing, there is a whole cluster of sexual harassment cases where your, you know, your sexual harasser has the key to your apartment. <laughs> and the point being, we don't have equality rights in all these other areas, right. actually. Right. Uh, there like should be equality rights. Right. Yeah, like the immigration context, it should be, but it isn't recognized. It should be with regard to police officers. It should be uh, in prisons, for example. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, it hasn't been adequately recognized. And then all these other civil contexts of where people don't have state power, but just have social power, right. social hierarchical power, as in white supremacy and the way that works. Um, that's not recognized at all. I think there is an understanding, particularly around around younger generations, certainly people that I teach and think with, um, about the fact that sexual harassment has much more reach in the law than just employment and, as you said, housing. So that was very clarifying, I think, just to give a sense of how sexual harassment law works and its possible and its reach. Um, alongside the Me Too movement in the last year, there has been um, ongoing political and social movements testifying to the nature um, of issues related to trans communities, transgender communities, gender non-binary people, who according to many studies, again, disproportionately experience issues of sexual harassment and sexual violence. The law at points, uh, as you have argued in other contexts and, and have, have established, the law at points has determined gender-based discrimination in the workplace includes gay bashing and homophobia. And while your advocacy initially saw sexual harassment as a women's issue, in the notes to your sexual harassment of working women, you also note that, quote, there might be a need to protect all people from the abuses of their sexuality. And so I wonder whether you might reflect on how you think discrimination on the basis of sex relates to powerful movements for trans rights today, particularly how does it relate to issues of access for trans individuals, whether in the workplace or more broadly? Yeah, sure. Um, I've actually been actively involved in working to establish the recognition that discrimination against people based on uh, being abused because they are gay or lesbian is itself purely a form of sex discrimination, whether it is a sexual violation or just plain discrimination because people are lesbian or gay. Um, I've been arguing for 35 years is sex-based discrimination, and that is starting, as you as you recognize, to uh, be accepted. And it actually originally was my argument, a mm -hmm. and so it is, you know, and is being accepted. Um, I've also argued for the same period of time uh, that trans people. <laughs> it couldn't be more obvious that trans people are when discriminated against as trans are discriminated against based on sex, it's either the sex they uh, apparently originally, I mean, that they originally were assigned, that it is seen that they are not adequately living up to the expectations of that, or it is the fact that they've transitioned from one to another or affirmed the one they are, saw themselves as originally having been, but mistakenly having been misassigned, or that they are an inadequate representation of the sex they are now being, and according to them always were, um, or that whatever it is they're doing, if they are non-binary, they're doing none of the above, that there's something wrong with that. 
all of that is either biologically based and not accepting that the set that the social standards are discriminating against what you're seeing at, in in relation to the biology or it is pure unadulterated sex stereotyping so anyway i've been arguing that for about 35 years and uh a federal court finally accepted that argument uh in a decision written by a student of mine um presenting that argument and the judge agreed with it and that has then in a in a case of a trans person and that has then become um a trans woman uh and that has become the basis for further such recognitions uh which occurred during the obama administration uh by uh in administrative law um discrimination law and the cases pretty much have been going in that direction since mm. um it's it's not i mean it's completely clear to me that that that, that is the story that is right. that to be discriminated against uh based on being a trans woman or a trans man is sex based discrimination um it's either based on sex per se or it's based on what is perceived as the lack of fit between gender and sex and that both of those uh are discrimination or if it's the change business you know it's like saying okay somebody converted uh to Judaism and they're discriminated against uh on an anti-semitic basis and somebody's saying oh that isn't discrimination based on religion that's discrimination based on conversion i mean hello <laughs> you know everyone knows that that's wrong right that and the fact that a person can so-called change um has never been a reason why uh if you're discriminated against based on a particular status you're not discriminated against based on that status right uh so if you're a convert uh, to a religion and then discriminated against based on religion it's still religious based discrimination uh and the same is true uh with sexuality um i actually rather like that parallel and i've always kind of loved it just because you know sexuality has a way of uh being both an identity for for folks and giving meaning to life in some respects and so on like religion you know it's a thing one adheres to uh yet also at the same time something that is uh used as a tag uh to hurt people um and so none of those arguments mean that a trans person uh is not discriminated against based on sex when they are discriminated against uh based on their trans status so um you know and then as i say there's the pure purely non-binary issue uh which is a simple issue of of sex stereotyping and is very easy to deal with it just simply means you know you're being measured by either standards of masculinity or femininity and found to fall short relative to either of those well that's already recognized as a federal legal claim so That's great. Thank you so much. Um we have in recent months heard much more about the complicity or collusion on the part of institutions in issues of sexual harassment and violence. Indeed, it seems that case after case we hear of institutions hiding long-term issues, whether it's as you described coaches or doctors, professors at Penn State, at Michigan State, recently at University of Southern California. 
In a paper you published in 2016 in the Yale Law Journal, you speak about the failures of needing to prove, quote, deliberate indifference on the part of institutions and the possible uses and effectiveness of international guidelines in, in um, opposition to deliberate indifference. Thinking about that paper, but also more broadly, what are some possible forms of accountability for institutions and their role in, in this endemic issue of sexual harassment and violence? Well, you know, the press has done uh, main, mainstream media as well as social media and the combination of the two has done quite a, quite a job on uh, these institutions. And that's a good thing because the law hasn't. And um, the main thing that these institutions are concerned about is actually not money. It's their reputation. Mm. Their reputation is long term money. It's everything. And if they lose their reputations, uh, they are not long for this world, and they know this. And so that is their real concern. And it used to be that they would be concerned about a possible lawsuit or a trial, but that wasn't even because they might lose it. It was because of the exposure that it caused and how bad it made them look. Mm -hmm. Well, now they're getting made to look bad up front. Um, th there's no trial in sight. There's not even a legal claim brought. In fact, a lot of these things would, couldn't be legal claims for any number of reasons, not because they aren't extremely severe. Uh, but statutes of limitations, for example, they just are all disappeared. And also with deliberate indifference, all the institutions that are covered by that standard, which is the standard for Title IX, discrimination based on sex in education, the educational institutions, all they have to do on my reading of the case law is a little bit more than nothing, something above zero, and they are not deliberately indifferent anymore. Mm -hmm. And that is to say they don't have to solve the problem. They don't have to prevent it from happening again. They don't have to give real relief to the people involved, even if they find they did it. They don't even have to find anything. No, they don't have to find what happened. They just have to, like, look alive a little bit and kind of try. <laughs> you know, like, have a hearing, do something. Right. And this is what uh, the scholar uh, Jennifer Freed, F-R-E-Y-D, Freed, has called institutional betrayal, mm. um, meaning that the institutions sort of look to promote themselves as in loco parentis, that is, in the place of a parent. We care about you, we love you. Well, you know, sometimes parents sexually abuse children. This is apparently the role they are aspiring to because what they're doing is sucking them into their apparent mantle of protection and then either doing nothing or not believing them, as too right. frequently happens to parents, or acting like they're doing something but not engaging in any actual protection for them or others in their position. Now, the other thing institutions have typically done in the past is fail to recognize that abuse that is reported to them under Title IX is a form of discrimination based on sex. Namely, it is not personal to her and him. It is because of the groups of which they are members, which includes gender. And therefore that means 
he most probably, it's not always a man, but often, um, is going to be preying upon others like either her or him, the student, members of the groups of which they are. And therefore, if they're going to do any serious protection, they have to do prevention. Right. They have to do something to stop this guy at the very least. And they don't. Um, their whole idea is let's separate the two of them. Let's, you know, give at most, give her a little space. Um, and not doing anything about the systemic nature of the situation, the systemic place that he has. He is a representative of a systemic problem. And they don't treat him like that typically. They treat him as, you know, uh, uh, some valuable scholar who gets big grants for the school. They treat him as, you know, a, they treat him like he's capital, you know, like he's what produces the value uh, that they have rather than seeing that the school actually is these students. Now, the question is, who is the school? You know, right. they're seeing that their interest in it is that the, the perpetrator, apparent, accused perpetrator, is the school, rather than that the students are the school. So they are constantly getting the short end of the stick, while the schools, you know, once this deliberate indifference rule was articulated in the late 90s, you know, you could hear the exhale from coast to coast where institutions just went, oh, phew, you know, all we have to do is look slightly alive here and nobody can hold us legally accountable for anything. So the bottom fell out. That's what happened. And, you know, students had some power before then and after that they don't. So Congress really has to change that, I think. Right. I mean, the next question I was going to ask you was on Title IX because of the kind of complications and obviously the debates that have been happening since the education secretary uh, has decided to draw back or to sorry, pull back some of the provisions under Title IX that were part of the Obama administration. And I was wondering if you would be um, able to reflect on what you think is happening with Title IX, uh, some possible, the use and possible drawbacks of Title IX as it is articulated right now in terms of sexual harassment issues, sexual harassment, sexual violence issues in educational institutions. I think you spoke about some of well, it. Yeah. Yeah, under the Obama administration, um, under Catherine Lehman's leadership in particular, uh, the Department of Education, an African-American woman, by the way, um, the the Obama administration brought more claims of sex discrimination in education than has ever been cumulatively done. I mean, mm -hmm. just in, uh, there were hundreds of them. Uh, this was a response to uh, the, a, a movement by survivors on social media, uh, where uh, what then came to be called campus sexual assault you know, which again for 40 years had been illegal and students had been complaining about it, but absolutely nothing had been done about it, except in very isolated circumstances. Um, suddenly the Obama administration started bringing uh, claims of discrimination, administrative claims against all these schools, which could have been getting brought, you know, ever since Alexander against Yale uh, recognized uh, 
sexual harassment as a legal claim under Title IX, right, right. Uh, which we did, you know, which we did in New Haven. Um, and Pamela Price was the was the lead plaintiff uh, ultimately in that case. Um, and from then on, those administrative claims could have been brought. And you know that was 1980. So they but they weren't. Uh, a few claims were brought in that uh, survivors would complain to the Office of Civil Rights, and then sometimes something would happen. There would be some investigation, uh, but very very few. Well, uh, when social media made it possible uh, through Know Your Nine uh, initially and uh, specifically the, the online organization uh, for survivors to connect with each other uh, in ways that they hadn't been able to do before. Uh, a lot of complaints were brought then and the Obama administration pursued them. So, you know, that was a major uh, Me Too type of movement uh, that happened, you know, in the past five to 10 years uh, prior to the current movement uh, in workplace sexual harassment recognition was that uh, movement in educational sexual harassment recognition. Hmm. So now uh, it appears to be in the process of being rolled back because right. the current administration, you know, which gets to make its own policies, uh, has revoked some of the most, all, the most important guidances uh, that were promulgated uh, under the Obama administration, and um, is apparently pretty determined to do nothing uh, about a lot of situations uh, that, you know, seem to many of us to call for their action. Right. Um, it's an interesting moment to have so much public outroar, uproar about this question, and then at the same time, an administration that is retreating from adjudicating these issues or dealing with, as you said, giving guidances around yeah. this. The president, currently, forty-five, um, you know, it became clear during the electoral campaign is uh, some kind of perpetrator of these injuries and it has to be that that kind of the leadership in that direction uh, would be part of the way the administration would develop and indeed that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. I'm going to shift gears just a little bit um, to ask you some questions about international contexts related to the Me Too movement. Signs, as you know, is an international journal I'm a scholar who works on the global south. I work on India and South Asia more broadly. Um, in India, as for many parts of the world, as you know, sexual harassment is defined in the law as heterosexual act that affects only women in that it names women as the only possible victims. And then across much of the former British empire like India and in Pakistan and in, in uh, Singapore, for example, sexual harassment appears in criminal codes as quote, assault or criminal force to a woman with the intent to, uh, to outrage her modesty, um, which is always an interesting articulation. And there's all sorts of interesting cases around modesty in Indian case law and of course in Singapore more recently. So, but I give these examples to ask what are some possible ways of thinking about advocacy 
at the level of law or otherwise that take place in the international context around issues of sexual harassment. Um, and I just thought I might ask you to reflect on some of those, the kind of international context, considering your work in the global, in, in issues of global law. Yeah, uh, my understanding of the Vishaka case is that it isn't limited to women um, in India and was actually one of the you know, more progressive forerunners of uh, recognition by employers of what needed to be done about sexual harassment um, by the Supreme Court of India, which at times, uh, in certain instances anyway, is a very progressive court. Um, right. The... Uh, the so-called Eve Keezing thing um, in in India is a, a, a bit of an ideological problem in that um, I guess the way I see it is that there's like a British moralistic overlay uh, to some of the recognition of sexual harassment, particularly in India, that um, isn't reflective of the understanding of the power issues by the activists, um, in the, the Indian women activists who work against it. Similarly, with the rape law and including the recent changes uh, in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, also it, it has to be mentioned that, you know, no, I mean, no, no political or legal work that goes on in India these days can can take place outside of the recognition of the larger political context that is the backdrop uh, for it. So, um, you know, my main work in India has to do with, uh, it, it is, involves women in prostitution. Mm -hmm. um, that is, prostituted women who uh, are seeking to leave prostitution. Um, and which actually most women in the world who are in prostitution, actually most people who are in prostitution, uh, want to leave it and say they want to leave it when asked, what do you most And so in any case, uh, I bring this up because um, what is, what's apparent is that sexual harassment makes all legitimate work into forms of prostitution. What it does is it says, um, you know, the only way you can economically survive is if you come across sexually. Well, if you just do that pure and simple, you have prostitution. If you do it together with other work, that's sexual harassment. It's just it, the identical dynamic and the identical consequence in, in which you basically don't get to survive economically either. You just have to come across sexually. And, you know, when you are in a legitimate workplace, uh, your work is endangered and you are endangered uh, and you may lose that job at any time or it may become impossible for you to stand being in it, at which point you've lost your job. So, you know, the, the demand uh, for, of sexual access in exchange for economic survival never even works as an exchange in that circumstance. And it overwhelmingly doesn't work in prostitution, uh, where pimps take, most women in prostitution are pimped actually, um, and pimps take most of the money that they make. So it's not, uh, it doesn't work out in either instance. And it just shows sort of, I mean, I just bring this up 
because of my particular work in India, but also I do that work internationally all around the world, including in the United States. So uh, the, the link with uh, prostitution as a structural form of the subordination of women, actually, um, and then its uh, transmutation into sexual harassment at work um, just makes clear that, that this is a much larger structural uh, condition of women around the world. That's great, thank you. Um, finally, I'm gonna let you go after asking so many questions, I so appreciate it. What are your thoughts on keeping the Me Too movement or more broadly these, these kind of public conversations moving forward um, from here? Well, I, you know, the, uh, the ever broadening uh, of the uh, social base of the women involved uh, has been a feature of it from the beginning mm -hmm. and is one of the reasons why it hasn't uh, just died out. That is, it isn't just an elite movement. Um, it is, it never has been and, you know, keeping it continuing as a uh, broad-based movement will make a big difference. Um, in particular, uh, I, I think, I mean, I, I will know we've really gotten to the foundation of some of this when women in prostitution and women who have managed to escape prostitution uh, start calling out uh, the men who have bought them, which is nothing other than sexual harassment, as I said, in, in another form. Uh, but those men are in power all around the world. They are continuing to be able to buy women and abuse them in any way at all. And that, you know, that, that will be a me to, to watch for, uh, to work for, um, and to care about it, it, we will know, I mean, people want to say, okay, how about women in the restaurant industry? You bet. How about them? Uh, having to, in fact, present themselves sexually, you know, in order to get a tip when they're making $2 and something an hour. Well, listen, uh, what that is, is having to prostitute yourself, uh, in order to make a living, uh, while, getting $2 and something an hour, whereas women in prostitution aren't getting anything an hour and they're having to prostitute themselves or be prostituted as it is. Uh, and so, you know, I, I look to see uh, the extension to uh, the most sexually violated group of women in the world who are women in prostitution. And, you know, it's, it's the reason that I proposed the Nordic model, um, which is now being accepted in a lot of places in the world, which decriminalizes people in prostitution and strongly criminalizes not only pimps and traffickers, but buyers. And that's because prostitution happens because there are people buying people in prostitution. They, their money is the engine uh, and makes it go forward. There would be no pimps if there were no buyers. Um, the pimps are in it because a profit can be made by selling the women to what we call in the United States, the Johns uh, or the Triggs. And so criminalizing them 
has turned out to be a very effective way to uh, stop trafficking in the Nordic countries that have adopted this approach. It's turned out, I mean, it's been accepted in France, it's accepted in Canada, um, and is in the process of undoing prostitution worldwide, much to the panic uh, of Sex Buyers International. Uh, so, you know, to me, when this argument and this understanding that you know women shouldn't have to be sexually available in order to survive economically, which is the core understanding of sexual harassment law, is actually applied to those women to whom that dynamic, I mean, that is, is applied now in its pure form, its unadulterated form, that is women in prostitution. Uh, th that, that will be the real moment of the liberation of women uh, that Me Too has prepared. Thank you so much for your time and speaking with us today for Ask a Feminist. Great, thank you. Thank you for your questions in particular. <laughs>